So I'm here with Paul Connick. I was about to say Harry Connick Jr. like you taught me beforehand. <laughs> no, it's much simple. K-O-N-I-K, five letters, much less easier than Harry Connick Jr. Yes, very much so. So, Paul, you're well regarded through the entire radio industry in this country as being both a real talent but also a survivor. And clearly, for anyone who's heard you speak in the last 30 seconds, you've definitely got a voice. Mm-hmm. So we're going to talk about your career in general. But just I like to kind of start at the end and then go back to the start. Mm-hmm. That's just to mix things up a bit on this show. With uh, radio now being, I think, the better part of 12 months in the revision mirror, is there anything that really sticks out to you that you miss most day to day? Well, I don't actually miss it because it's so different now. Uh, it's gone through stages and every decade it's different. And now it's uh, a little, in a way, to my way of thinking, a little less personal because of networking, networking and automation. So nowadays, years ago, a radio station would be very local. You know, 3CS Colac would be in Colac and 3NE Wangrata would be in Wangrata and 3SR Shepparton would be in Shepparton. Nowadays, you don't know where things come from. They're owned by networks and it could be there's a lot of satellite programming, which comes from mainly Melbourne, sometimes Sydney. And uh, and a lot of it's recorded because a network can use an announcer. So if someone goes on holiday or whatever, they just record from somewhere else and you don't know where it's coming from yeah and i i don't miss that i couldn't really do that to me that's too impersonal i mean that's the way it is now it's modern day radio but uh people ask me do i miss it no i don't (laughs) yeah well that's an honest answer that's what we like so obviously i have stressed in the past and also paul and i talked about before we started today I don't want this to be a radio podcast because it's meant to be about the area i just find speaking to radio people to be entertaining and also (laughs) Really, really great on the editing side because you're so good at it, (laughs) just speaking in general. With the networked shows, I understand it because I am a bit of a radio nerd when it comes to that drive slot because in the afternoons, if you've got a show of the quality of Kate, Tim and Marty, which Mm. is probably the biggest or the most loved show in the country at the moment, it must be so hard to think that we're going to have anything on in the afternoon locally that can that can compete with the best show that's Mm. on Australian radio Mm. at the moment. That's just my opinion, but it's right up there. So outside of that slot, where to me the networking thing makes a little bit more sense from a business perspective, Mm. nothing else, why would networks be pushing those network programs into other parts of the the day? Like what, in your opinion, what's the- Money. Yeah, it's- Money. But isn't the- it wasn't the entire industry. The business case of radio was built on that local, local, local thing. Well, it was. It was. Well, it isn't anymore. You see, uh, in the case of uh, locally, 3NE Wangaratta was started in 1954 and was a local radio station in those days before automation. Everything was local. It'd be between five, six, to up to eight announcers wow. uh, at all the country stations. All, all local. All local. Wow. And from start to finish, and stations would open about 5.30 or 6, and they'd be off the air by 11, 11.30. And uh, it was all live announcers. You know, the breakfast guy would be followed by the morning guy and, and, and so forth. Well, nowadays, uh, for a start, uh, partly because of wages, uh, people, I guess, can't afford that. And uh, so networks buy uh, a station and uh, add it to the network. So a lot of stuff comes from elsewhere, like the talk shows, like Neil Mitchell comes from Melbourne, and the All Night comes from Melbourne, and, and like the Oath Radio Network that now owns 3NE. And, uh, and there's, there's, uh, there's three networks in, in Victoria. There's Southern Cross Australia, there's Ace Radio, and there's Grant Broadcasters. That's it. They own everything in Victoria. There's not a single independent radio station. 3NE was the last independent station in Victoria. Wow. 
Okay, that's well, I didn't know that. That's pretty crazy. So, well, the other thing is that most stations uh, or most networks, even if most of the day comes from somewhere else, at least breakfast is local, whereas, see, at at, uh, Ace Radio, the breakfast session comes from Warnable. Okay. Uh, that's a guy called John Vertigan and a girl called Kate Mee. So John and Kate, yeah. they come out of Warnable uh, uh, and there's nine stations in the network and that, that's where it comes from. So even the breakfast is not local. So a lot of the local news and information you get, like late trains or if you're running for a plane at the Albury Airport, Albury's fogged in, you can't, you know, the planes are late, etc. all that's gone. And I've said in the past, I'm not sure on the show, but I have said to many people that, I guess I'm more of a fan of the talents of the people themselves that mm. are on radio, more mm. so than the format of the product mm. itself. Yeah. And it's probably why I don't spend a massive amount of time on morning radio because so like it's just like in Aubrey, for example, it is local. Mm. And I don't know whether that's just a fortunate byproduct of the fact that it's been the hub of mm. Yeah, previous it stations is, it is. and yep. it's where a lot of extra production gets done and things so the station has a certain amount of resources yeah. but can you could you imagine when you were starting out that a market the size of Wangaratta which granted is always bigger than I remember it is every mm. time I come here like I was like wow there's a lot of you told me go through three roundabouts and I was like wow this is about four kilometres <laughs> there's a lot of people here did you ever think that there would be a market this size that wouldn't have their own local radio, like their their own breakfast show, particularly breakfast because it's the big market in our country. Did did that even cross your mind? Well, Southern Cross Australia, their their, uh, focus is uh, on breakfast being local. So wherever you go where there's a a Southern Cross Australia station like what is now Hit FM and Triple M, which used to be Star and and River, uh, the breakfasts are local and then the rest of the day might come from somewhere else. So at least they stick to that. Whereas Ace Radio have a, you know, their breakfast comes from Warnable. And Grant Broadcasters, the other uh, network, they do pretty much the same thing. In fact, they're local a lot more of the day, like they own 3BA Ballarat and Power FM and 3, uh, what used to be 3GL, which is now uh, uh, K-Rock and Bay FM, uh, they're, they're pretty much not only local in breakfast, a couple of other shifts are local as well. So every network's got different plans and different yeah. philosophies, you know, but, but basically a lot of it's around money, and I understand that. I think if I owned a radio station, maybe I'd do the same thing, that it's easier to, to uh, automate and so forth, and then uh, say say that the afternoon guy goes on holidays, rather than hire someone to fill in, you just get someone else in the network to do that three or four yeah. or five hours, and, yeah, and okay. you save a dollar. Yeah, and I guess they're probably their reasoning would be also not just monetary it's that's a known quantity mm, that, that's that, right that talent yeah. that we're bringing on yeah. there is someone we trust to be yeah. able to carry a yeah. shift that's right it just to me the global markets that are well in the past may you might have been able to say were competitive with the quality of the Australian market in the radio world like North America mm. they went down that path so far mm-hmm. that those companies are filing. Ma- like world- record level bankruptcies. Oh like yeah, Hi-Hart absolutely. Media. They networked. Absolutely. They networked to and, the point that the industry almost fell apart. And cumulus, they've yeah. overbought. Yeah. Well, see, if you if you go anywhere in in the English speaking world, uh, not so much England, but the USA, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand are all the same. So if, if you're in Queenstown in New Zealand, there's a station called Coast FM that comes from Auckland, and that just 
covers all of New Zealand, North and South Island. Yeah. So there's no difference. Australian radio has just followed what's happened overseas. And, and you're quite right that iHeartRadio, which used to be Clear Channel Communication, became iHeart. And there's another mob called Cumulus, which is the yeah. second biggest. Uh, and Enercom, uh, I think, is another one, which is uh, used to be CBS. They, uh, they've they overbought. They bought that many stations that they're now all bankrupt. To the- yeah. <laughs> it just seems like if, if you're seeing it fail in an even bigger market, mm. that the business, like the strength of the actual execution on that has to be almost perfect for it to work. Yeah. And, it, yeah, I mean, I don't want to sit here and bitch and moan about the state of the radio business with someone that's had such a great career, so we might just move into your... Yeah, yeah well, I'm just saying it, it's different, you know, uh, and and things change every decade or, or so. There's new technology. See, I started off with turntables. Yeah. I used to put <laughs> spin a disc on a turntable. Yeah. And then, uh, then and, and the, the ads were on disc as well. And then later on, we got a thing called Spotmaster, where a thing was on a master cartridge. And, uh, and then computers started. So every year, yeah. Oh, every decade, things change. New technology, new ideas, and people obviously pinch a lot of stuff from the states. Yeah. So there's a trend in the states. So let's follow there, and it's just one of those things. There's nothing you can do about it, you know. And you either like it or you don't. Before we really knuckle down on Paul himself, I think the thing that gets to me is that these are huge companies. Some are in the billions of dollars, and there's a few great shows that are around at any one time. When really, if you were talking about a golden age of some other product like music in the 70s or mm. the mm-hmm. rock and roll in the 70s, yeah, you could legitimately have an argument that who is the best rock band that's playing on this festival from 1 to 10? There was 10 all-time great things happening at the Pink Floyd, Queen, mm-hmm. Led Zeppelin, mm. the Rolling Stones were mm. well enough and running, mm. Aerosmith. Mm. There, there was endless numbers of bands mm. and they were all around the globe and mm. there was a legitimate conversation to be had that why isn't there more shows of the level of Hamish and Andy or Kate, Tim and mm. Marty or some of them brought like the uh, morning shows that come out on AM in the different cities around Australia. Like there's really seems to be only one or two great examples of things happening at a time whereas yeah. in the past there was a genuine argument as to every station had their they showed that they could put up. Yeah. Well, that, that's the same thing's happened with television. When television first started in Australia, there was local TV, you know, AMV4 yeah. in Albury and a GMV6 in Shepparton. And there was a local footy show and there was a local morning show and there, there were local local stars in Shepparton and, and Albury and and uh, whatever, you know, that GLV10 down in Traugan and so forth. Well, that's all gone. It all comes, it's all networked now. It all comes out of Melbourne and uh, or Sydney and uh, everything you watch is a National show. It's just a trend, and that's the way it is, you know. And uh, there's nothing you can do about it. That it's just moved on. Yeah, I guess you're right. And there's that little tinkling of that small bit of business brain that I do have. That I understand the economics of why they're doing it. It'd be just good that if everything that was national had the quality of something that deserved to be national. That's mm. just all where mm, I'm going yeah. from. And well, particularly on the particularly moment, radio is obviously way out in front of television when it comes to strong products across the board at that level, but some of the TV that makes it national. <laughs> well, it's easy to be critical, and uh, and I am, and people say to me, well, hang on a second, what would you do if you ran a radio station? You think, oh, hang on, <laughs> yeah. because it's very, very expensive to run a radio station. It costs a lot of money. So even if you make a lot of money, once you've paid everybody off, you know, you've got to look at the yeah. margin and you think, well, well, we've worked so hard for this small amount. Yeah. So obviously, if you find a shortcut, you take it. Yeah, exactly. I guess I would too. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. So 
when we're talking about shortcuts, you certainly didn't have one of those in your own career. So no. I just we'll just talk about it, and then maybe this has been talked about recently in a great article in the Border Mail, which I'll link to in the show notes of this episode if you wanted to read that. But I was hoping that maybe we could skip over certain parts of the career. We might just mention how you moved around, but mm-hmm. really knuckle down on certain places yeah, that sure. you were at. So I understand that the what got the bug going for you, you, you contracted the radio disease, wanting mm-hmm. to be a DJ was from either or possibly both a station tour of 3UZ and 3KZ in Melbourne. Yep. Is that correct? Yep. So how old were you when? Well, I was a 15-year-old kid at high school and uh, DJing had just started and the top 40 started and uh, the UZ and KZ were the two top stations as far as teenagers were concerned. And uh, I rang a jock called Stan Rofe one day and and, and labels were the big deal. No one cares now. But uh, in those days, uh, uh, there was a record called Pink Shoelaces by Dodie Stevens and it was on a little label called Crystalette. And uh, what happened in America? And still does that a big label would buy something there'd be a regional hit and a big label would buy it and then and they'd become a national hit anyway he said that's on abc paramount and i rang up and i said in those days you get to a jock fairly quickly yeah. I, I rang him up and i said look you're wrong that label's crystal it's not abc paramount and he said uh, well actually it, you're right but he said the bigger label bought bought the smaller song that's how it's our national hit and he said you sound like you're pretty interested in music and i said yes i am he said would you like to come and have a look around the studio one day and i said fine so i went in and i had a look around the studio and and, and watched him work and so forth and got the bug and there was another guy in three years there called jeff haynes and uh, they were great rivals so i couldn't tell either of them that i knew the other one so, <laughs> so i got to know jeff haynes and he asked the same thing he said come and have a look around so i had a look around so those guys were my idols and I thought this is the way to go and also I thought I, I couldn't see me doing a nine-to-five office job and I thought this is pretty cool you know these guys two three or four hours on the end that's it I didn't realize they had other duties because from the outside I thought that's all they did but they did yeah. other things right anyway so that's how it all started okay so just on that when you're, you're talking about other duties I mean that's something that's across the board for any creative person mm. that if they are at the top of their field they're normally not just doing that one yeah. thing. They're very yeah. good at something else that maybe is why they managed to roll yeah. through the ups yeah. and downs of getting to the point where they're yeah. really yeah. great. Well, from the outside, you don't know that. They might have been. <laughs> I mean, in radio, they could have been a music programmer or something else. I mean, yeah. what were these particular gentlemen I mean, that you were a fan of? What were they doing outside of their on-air that was keeping Well, them- it's not, not so much outside. They're still doing things like uh, Stan Rove did a show called Platter Parade, which initially started off at 5 to 6.30. I thought, hour and a half a day. What, well, a, what a great yeah, gig. That's, that's pretty great. But uh, <laughs> the, what I didn't know is that he had 6.30 to 7.30 off to have dinner, and then he went back and did, did 6.30 or 7 to midnight. Okay, so right. he did another four or five hours. I didn't know that because I didn't listen. I, I found out eventually, but initially I didn't know that. Yeah. And a lot of these guys, they had other things. They were up yeah, station promotions and they had to go to outside broadcast and store openings and the other other duties. Yeah, okay. So they weren't just in the mythical, magical studio no, all the time. No, Well, because as a listener, that's all you knew. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, that's the same I, I found when I was playing in bands. Mm. I mean, we're obviously, we're never a professional band, but mm. there was, beyond the songwriting and the actual performing, like rehearsing and then performing, there was another hundred jobs if you wanted the band to function, even mm. at the you know at the lowest level. There mm. was still another hundred jobs, and yeah. you had to work really hard to get good at any of them. Yeah, yeah. And it's sometimes the, those the hidden things, things. The hidden things. Oh, yeah. I mean, we don't want to get 
too derailed on a philosophical t- topic, but it is those things quite often that allow you to get good at your main yeah, yeah. endeavour. So you did the hard yards, and from what I understand, you went to announcing school, which, I mean, yep. me hearing you speak, it's clear that yeah, your yeah, voice is yeah. highly trained. Was that a tough slog? What sort of time frame does that happen over? Is it an intense few months or is it over a couple of years? Depends or? on the, the jobs available. See, nowadays, this is another thing that's a bit of a beef with people who of my vintage who are in radio that we used to go to school. Nowadays, guys walk off off yeah. the street virtually. You know, there's sex footballers, uh, ex-sportsmen, uh, yeah. uh, stand-up comics, uh, you know, various people who, who, because of their fame, were asked to go on radio. Yeah. And that's a sort of an identity and fame thing. Whereas years ago, if you wanted to get into radio, number one, you went to a radio school. And there were two in Melbourne, one called Lee Murray's and the other one was called Vincent's. And you're either a Vincent's man or a Lee Murray man. And we'd get, when, as soon as you got your first job, you'd arrive. People, that was the first thing people would ask you, a Murray man or a Vincent man? <laughs> and... Um, so you went to school usually two nights a week, be an hour and a half, maybe an hour and a half, two hours, whatever, and uh, and you did it until until he got a job, you know. And what what the radio school would do, he'd take his five or six or seven best people, and he'd know there was a, a vacancy at two AY Albury or three SH Swan Hill or whatever, and he'd send off a tape with three or four or five voices. Well, none of them might get the job, but yep. but one of them. Might, yeah, and that's how it worked. And he w- would would act as your agent as well. Okay. He'd train you, and then act as your agent, and that's how you got your job. In this is going 50s, 60s, 70s. Yeah, okay. And what were those particular gentlemen like on the negotiation of contracts for you on that first contract? Well, it's uh, clearly they were good at the voice training part. <laughs> well, there weren't, weren't no contracts in the country. You just applied for a job and you got the job, and yep. uh, the money was not terrific, but you did it because. Uh, you know, he wanted to get into the business and foot in the door and all that kind of business. And I know various people who make more money than I was in other jobs who had to drop had to drop money to get the radio to drop money to become famous, become yeah. a radio well, guy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's something that when people move out of something like football, there's mm. only a limited number of opportunities mm-hmm. that they can make that same kind of money in mm. and maybe a big radio slot mm-hmm. seems like a great opportunity. Mm. Something with a really high-end stand-up that I never quite understood was they either don't sleep, mm. these guys, or they're sacrificing part of their stand-up potential mm. to be on, particularly if they're on the morning radiation. Mm. Mm. Like, when does stand-up happen? It's happening at night time. Late at night, So, yeah. they're either coming in and not doing a good job of the radio, or they're stand-up <laughs> suffering, or they're just an alien. Yeah. So, oh, I think they probably drop, a lot of them drop stand-up when well, they've I'm, got a gig, they've got a morning yeah. gig, that's it. Well, I know I keep coming back to Marty, Kate, Tim and Marty, but it's really the person that I really admire is Marty Sheargold, and I think he may have done what you did, Mm. and that's when he realised that he was really... He was can't burn the candle at both ends. (laughs) If you want to be exceptional as a stand-up or or on the radio or at anything, if there's two options, you really need to dedicate yourself to one Mm, mm, if you want to be truly exceptional. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Well, a fair bit of prep uh, in, a, in a show, so uh, they'd have to get up once again. They might do six to nine on air, but they might be in the studio yeah. by five or four thirty yeah. or something. You know, putting stuff together. So, was that something? And we might just move on. Your first job, from what I can tell, was in West. Is it West Gippsland? Three uh, yeah, Three Warrigal, Yeah. Yeah. So, was that the preparation side? Is something that comes up with people in any kind of content business? as that's where the real work is. Mm, yeah. And the performance part is quite often the fun yeah. bit where you get to execute what, yeah. the f- yeah. great joke or the good story or whatever. Yeah, yeah. 
Was that something that you also were trained, or was that a learn-on-the-job? No, that's a learn-on-the-job thing. You, you Sometimes you try and just fly by the seat of the pants, <laughs> yeah, and you guy. turn up and, and, and talk off the top of your head, and sometimes that works, and sometimes that doesn't. Yeah. Uh, but I would do half and half, you know, do a, a bit of prep, and uh, and then a lot of it was off the top of the head to react to what had just happened. You know, you hear the news like, Peter Talk died the other day, yesterday. Uh, I was on air one day, and uh, Robert Kennedy uh, had been assassinated in Los Angeles. So I, I, news uh, flash came in. They said, you know, stop the record, uh, announce the fact that Kennedy's been killed. So I had to stop the monkey's record and say, well, you know, Dr. Kennedy's been killed and, and so forth. Well, you can't prepare for that. No. Uh, it just happens, you know, yeah. so you react. And uh, you, you, but you made a, made a comment and uh, away we went again. You could, you, there's some things you can prepare for, others you can't. And sometimes you prepare, prepare stuff and you then can't use it because, uh, you know, something else comes up. Yeah, okay. So with that preparation process, because, I mean, I'm assuming when you're writing for a highly formatted kind of content business where it's there's time limits and you need to hit certain mm. production elements and you need to – there's formatics to the whole business – if you're in the morning, I'm assuming people want the weather and yeah, the yeah, time, etc. Yeah, all that extra stuff, yeah. How, how did you – let's just maybe cover a few of these places that you went in between. How did you see your own development as a preparer? Did you find over time that you found your own methods for getting oh, yeah, to the yeah, good stuff yeah. quickly? Well, I yeah. was a great newspaper reader. Okay. And when I say that, I would go through the paper from front page to back page and quite often uh, papers have a little gap that they can't fill and they fill a little tiny story that's about the size of a postage stamp. You know, and it might be something yeah. about a rare beetle being found or, or you know, a man bites dog or, you know, a, a weird little story. And I would read those things and people say where do you get that stuff and I'd say well out of the paper you can get it too if you really go (laughs) as strictly as I do because I wouldn't just go to the headlines I'd go to all this little tiny stuff at the bottom of the page and it might be some weird little story Um, I can't think of an example but I do a lot of that stuff yeah well you actually told me a weird little story in our pre-chat that we had Mm. a few weeks ago which I'll bring up in a minute Mm. and just I just wanted to highlight there was and some of the younger people that are listening to this, I mean, not obviously most of the people listening to this show are not going to want to be in the radio. Mm. They might be interested in it like I am, but could be for any creative endeavour. You did some hard yards when it came to moving. Someone's trying to break something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so just I might have the cr- the chronology wrong here, but there was 2XL, 2XL sorry, in Kuma, yeah. 2QN in Daniloquin. Yeah. Then I found several references to a 3KZ and a 3UZ in Melbourne. I'm not sure. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you the chronology. I went to 3 or Warrigal and I was given three months uh, probation. And uh, the manager thought that I had was, was a, a trained announcer, a, a, yeah, experienced announcer is the word I'm looking for. And uh, it, when he met me at the station and took me to the 3 all and showed me around, a guy called Colin Cameron, now retired as well, and uh, he was quite happy and jovial and amiable and affable and, until he said, how does this station compare to others you've been at? And I said, oh, Mr Cameron, I haven't actually been to any 
at all. And he said, what? What? And and he left me standing in the record library and ran down to his office. And I followed him down, not knowing what else to do. And he left the door open and he rang the network program manager. He said, you've sent me another cadet. I said, I'm not not a training place. I don't want another (laughs) cadet. Why'd you send me? And I thought I could see myself not having a long career. And sure enough, as soon as I got to day 91, the three months was up, they called me in and I was fired. Yeah, okay. Wow. (laughs) But then I went to 2XL Kuma, which was... Once again, it was a, I was offered a six-week gig there because a guy was going to go to England. And he got to England and decided he'd like to stay there. So within two weeks, he rang up and said, I'm not coming back. So they said, well, you can stay. So that was my second gig. Yeah. Then I went to 2QN, and then my first Radio City gig was 3UZ, which at that time, and no one can understand this nowadays because things are different, but in those days, 3UZ was the number one station in Melbourne, and it was the highest rating station in Australia, so it was like Hollywood, you know, yeah, to okay. get a job at 3UZ was like dying and going to heaven, Yeah, okay. So, uh, and there are only eight jocks, so, uh, you know, you're a star, you go to a party and say, what, what people say, what do you do, I work in radio, well, well where am I, it's 3UZ, 3UZ, oh, you yeah, know, wow. that, that was considered to be a very big deal. <laughs> Okay, so you've made that sound like a bit of a meteoric rise, but what sort of time frame was that happening over? Oh, well, I'll tell you exactly. Three months at Warrigal, I got fired. I was at 16 months at 2XL. I got uh, I quit there without a job to go to. Okay. I had to work for a couple of months. Then I went to 2QN, and I was only there six months, and I got the gig at 3UZ. So uh, that was a very short time there. And, uh, and then 3UZ was two years. Then I went to 3XY. I was there yep. for about four years. And then I was offered a job in the record business, and I was program, um, uh, promotions manager for Warner Brothers Records. Okay, wow. And that I was a big time because yeah, okay. uh, Warner's at that time, uh, they uh, had bought Atlantic and they had bought Electra. Yeah. So they had the Doors, they wow. had the Stones, they had Led Zeppelin, and, you know, unbelievable, um, unbelievable. And normally you'd just go into a record shop. As, I was only PR, I wasn't selling. But uh, people say, oh, you know, can we have this, can we have that? I mean, we sold thick as a brick by uh, Jethro Tull, that was a gold record before it was released. Wow. Just on orders, you know. Oh, that, that's how, how big that was at that yeah, time. So that was a fascinating time to be in. And then I went to a smaller company called Image. They had Daddy Cool okay. and uh, Eagle Rock and a couple, couple in, and Rick Springfield and a few other people. Much smaller label. And then I went back to radio. Then I went to 3KZ. Okay. So uh, before I forget my small story that was really interesting... And it's something that I tried to confirm with my dad both last night and this morning, but he mustn't be at home at the moment. He might be visiting his girlfriend in. Apparently, Koryong, in your travels, because I'm assuming you may have went through Kuma on a regular yeah, basis yeah, together, yeah, yeah. there was a Hungarian restaurant yeah. in Koryong yeah. that you had frequented. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about this? Like, usually... My family are the type of family that will tell me every person that's owned every chunk of land in mm. Koryong for the last 150 years mm. and who their grandfather was and their uncle and the dog you never mm. met, etc. So I didn't have any clue that there was any kind of, you know, ethnic yeah. food available in Koryong, particularly back then. I'm assuming it was a was it because of the Snowy Mountain scheme at the time? Oh, I don't know why they were there, but the, the, the situation in radio, it's different now. Everyone gets a weekend off. In radio, when I first got in, the only we worked a six-day week. We either worked Saturday and Sunday plus the rest of the week. So you had Saturday off or Sunday off. That was it. Okay. Well, in a st- station like Thrill or Warrigal, which is only 60 miles from Melbourne, not a big deal. But um, Cooma was such a long way from everywhere. Yeah. And most announcers came from Melbourne. Some would come from Sydney. 
too far from Sydney, too far from Melbourne, so they'd advertise a job and no one would go there because they'd figure, what can you do in one day off? I mean, you have to stay in town. But it was per- yeah. kids 17, 18, 19 want to go and visit their mum and dad. You know? So uh, they worked out a situation where you worked three weeks without a day off and then well. you, you saved your days up. <laughs> okay. So I would do Sunday breakfast from six to nine I'd have the rest of Sunday off, then I'd have Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday off, and all of Thursday till 7 o'clock when I had to come back and do 7 to 11 at night. So in those days, as soon as I finished 9 o'clock on a Sunday, I would head straight off, out of Cooma, and a bin of me, you can be over the top into Coriong. Yeah, okay. And uh, normally I just keep going. But I uh, noticed that there's this restaurant one day and I thought, oh, I'll stop and have a meal. So I went in and uh, the Hungarians ran it and uh, I had a Wiener schnitzel, as I remember. Yeah. And I didn't do it every time, but I did it a couple of times. And uh, so I stopped and had a meal and, and then went on to Wodonga and then down the Hume Highway to Melbourne. Nice. So uh, that was your t- 1960. Three, I'm talking. Well, that would have been a pretty long drive. Yeah, I would imagine. 900 and something miles, yeah. Took eight or nine hours to call. Yeah, because Kuma, all day. people in Koryong, if you've ever met any of them, they talk about Threadbow mm. and Perisher mm. like they're just a little jaunt up the road. Yeah. Two hours later in a car, mm. of driving along a road that's not even a road, it's a goat track. Yeah. It's, not, it's a lot better now, obviously. Yeah. yeah. Alpine you, way. You finally, <laughs> finally get there. And then Kuma's X amount of yeah. kilometres past that again. It's basically most of the way to Canberra. Yeah. And you were driving that. There was no bypasses on the Hume at that no, point either. No, no. So how, how long was Wodonga to Melbourne, just for uh, perspective? Uh, 300 kilometres or something. Yeah. Yeah. What sort of time, though? Because you would have been driving through Wang, oh, through well, it, Uroa. It would, would take, well, as I say, it would do six to nine, and I've, everything was live in those days, nothing automated, so yeah. I couldn't automate anything. So I did six to nine, until I hit nine o'clock, I was out of there, you know, and uh, uh, then I'd go over the top if there was not snow, like especially yep. for, you know, summer. And I'd, I'd go to Wodonga and then Wodonga to Melbourne. The whole trip would take me nine hours nonstop, apart from stopping for petrol. Wow. That's massive. <laughs> And obviously, when you were in Melbourne, that job in Cooma must have been, you must have really been getting a lot out of that to think that 1,800 kilometres, oh, sorry, 1,800 hours of driving a week on top of your normal driving, you do a round up there, but you kept going back to it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, what was it about, would you say that that Cooma job was your, the formation of you as a professional radio person? Uh, yeah, in a way, because they let you get away with a bit. Was that, getting bro- sorry, Paul, was that getting broadcast into Canberra or was it hyper No, it's 70 Ks from Canberra. Yeah, so, so no I mean, if, you, if you're real keen, you might fiddle around. Like we used to listen to 2CA Canberra Cage, but you didn't get it all the time. Yeah, okay, right. Being up in the hills. Yeah. But to it, so maybe a broadcast to that area, you know, Cooma, Nimmer Bell, you can be in Adaminibi, all that snow mountain area. What was it that was bringing you back every Thursday morning to make that night shift? Well, a job for a start. (laughs) It was was an income and hopefully um, a stepping stone to somewhere else. Yeah, I guess having lived in Melbourne and my whole family lives there, cousins, all my siblings, Melbourne has a certain gravity to it Mm. that something has to be pretty bloody appealing to get you to leave that city, because yeah. to people in Melbourne, it's the centre of the universe. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, the whole thing is you needed, I needed a job. And it was, uh, I mean, I would have preferred to be in Melbourne, and that's where I was aiming, and that's yeah. in those days, that's what everybody did. You went to uh, the city to do your apprenticeship, and that's why the money was so low, because they figured that it's only going to be here three months or six yeah. months, and as soon as he gets a gig in the city, he's gone. Or sometimes be more money at another regional station. So that pipeline or that apprenticeship system was well and truly entrenched even in those days. So you would 
develop the bug wherever you happen mm. to yourself in Melbourne and go regional. Mm. And then what was the normal kind of way that two to three stations generally yeah, for someone? Usually, or? usually two or three. Yeah. And, and every now and then. If you, in, years ago, 3BA Ballarat had a very good reputation and, uh, and, and 7EX Launceston. So if you got to one of those, you're nearly guaranteed to get into the city fairly quickly. But I took three. took three or Warrigal, then 2XL Kuma, and then 2QN, then before I got to UZ. So about three stations. And mind you, a lot of people got married locally and had kids and stayed there. They were Melbourne guys, yeah. but they like the country and they no, stay there. And I, I, I was surprised by the country because I didn't think I was a country person. I got so used to it, the fact that everything was so close and uh, you got to know people and, and so forth. So it was like a club. So I hummed and hard. And when I left then, he went back to Melbourne. It took a while to readjust to suddenly be back in a big smoke yeah, after yeah. being in a small town. <laughs> Absolutely. So the just so we don't get too tied down for the people listening in call numbers and mm-hmm. station names, etc. there was a few things in that part of your career I wanted to focus on before we come forward sure. to your time in Wangaratta. You did a little bit of time at some point. I'm sorry, I couldn't get the chronology quite right on it. At Snow FM. No, that was a different thing entirely. I had left commercial radio and I'd gone to the ABC. And a guy got in touch with me. And and years ago, I was involved in the snow industry, a a very keen skier. And um, there was no radio in places like uh, any of the hills. You know, you you couldn't get it. And and so everyone just had cassettes in those days. You'd swap cassettes and so forth. And some guy... I got the idea of getting a radio station in the snow, actually in the snow. And the government brought out a thing called a narrow cast licence, which was only a two-kilometre radius. And so uh, he started this three SNO FM, snow FM. And uh, we, uh, in 1989, I think, or earlier than that, we got a licence. And the control board wouldn't give us a licence for one hill. We wanted just Falls Creek. Reasons known only to themselves, they said you can't have a license for Force Creek for three months, but you can have a license for Mount Hotham for a month, Mount Buller for a month, and Force Creek for a month. I said, okay. Right. So that's what we did. So we went to Hotham for a month, and we had to pack up and move to Aub- uh, uh, um, Buller. Then we were there for a month, and then we moved to Force Creek. We wanted to be most of the time anyway. That's where our ownership was. The people yeah, of yeah. Force Creek owned the station. Okay. So it was the first station in the snow. And uh, of course, as soon as. 2AY, Aubrey and 3 and and all these other stations thought, hey, <laughs> there is a market There's a proof there. of concept, yeah. They, they made sure they got another transmitter or up the yeah, okay. power or whatever, so you know, more or less. Uh, so you guys were just finished. the crash test dummies up yeah, there? Yeah, yeah, that's what it was. Yeah, someone had to start it. We were the pioneers when they realised that there was a market Yeah, because our biggest client was Carl United Breweries, which in those days, 25 grand for a little backyard little outfit yeah. uh, that was pretty good dough so, yeah, uh, awesome. and they, 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 they uh, Carl brought out a brand called uh, Cold Filtered Bitter yeah. and they launched it at Buller because the top three executives of Carl United Breweries are all keen skiers yeah, okay. so they, right. they launched it at Mount Buller yeah wow yeah. <laughs> That's, that, yeah just so just before we move on from that the ownership that bought the concept to the area only had the station available one of the three months that it was up there. Well, that's right. Well, then the following year, we, we only got, we've ignored Hotham. The following year, we just did Buller and Falls. Yeah. And then I think the final year, we just did Falls Creek. And the whole thing just got worse and worse and yeah. eventually fell over. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so you did, <laughs> you did, yeah. It's always back to money, isn't it? 
you mentioned that you did some time at the ABC. What sort of time frame was that? What era of the ABC? And also, how long were you there for? I was there 16 years. 16 years, wow. I got fired from 3KZ in 1976, and I was offered a job at the ABC and at 5DN in Adelaide, and I knocked both of them back. Then I got fired, and I rang the ABC. My stupidity, the guy I wanted to talk to was out to lunch. Now, I could have waited an hour, but I panicked. So I thought, he's not available, so I rang Adelaide, and I said, I've changed my mind. I I didn't say I sacked, but I sort of changed my mind. So I went to 5DN, and it was a disaster. I hated it from the minute I got there. I resigned after eight days. They talked me into staying, and then I I got to the five-week mark, and I went to the general manager. I said, we are never going to get on. You know, this was a waste of time. And by that stage, he agreed. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I came back to Melbourne and I rang the ABC and I said, is the job that I was offered available? And they said, well, that one isn't, but there was another one if you want to do that. And I said, yeah, anything. So I came back to Melbourne and I stayed, uh, 1976 that was, and I stayed at the ABC for 16 years. And what was good about that, that they were very forgiving and I, I learnt television there. I, I had no intention of getting into TV. Okay. I appeared on a show called Uptight, which was on a channel, now 10, it was ATBI in those days. It was 8 to 12 on a Saturday morning. I appeared on that for nothing. Yeah. And uh, then when I went to the ABC, they said, do you want to read television news? And it hadn't occurred to me. I said, oh, yeah, give it a crack. So I had a couple of dry runs, and then I started reading TV news. Wow. And how, obviously, that's a, you would say, besides the fact that you're all performing in with your voice, mm. how different was something like the news compared to normal day-to-day content oh, creation? Because a mean, lot different, a lot different. There's, you're, there's, not there. you're not entertaining anybody, are you? Well, you're staring into a camera, yeah. and there's other people there, and uh, you know, there's four or five people on the floor, plus umpteen people in the control room, and the only person that can be seen is you. And one time I had to have a do a story about two New Guinea tribes having a fight, and they both had very weird, funny names, and I said to the crew, please don't laugh and crack me up. And uh, of course, I, I did, and I said, well, you know, the pick, Billy Willies had beaten the you know Waka Wakas or somebody. Yeah. The crew started to laugh, and then right. it cracked me up, and I cracked <laughs> up on camera, which is not a good thing to do. Yeah, but that's <laughs> I guess with your career up until that point, whoever you were across from in the studio, mm. if you were doing it shift with more than one person. Yeah. You would have been encouraged, I would imagine, if they said something funny to laugh at it. Yeah. <laughs> and then you suddenly got to turn that switch off. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so how long did that take? Did you ever, obviously 16 years, were you involved in the news side that entire time? Yeah, or? yeah news, radio, and because and, they own Radio Australia, which I still have Radio Australia, which is the overseas service. Yeah. So there was 3 alone 3 hour, which is the ABC domestically. Then there was Radio Australia, the overseas service of the ABC, plus television. So I was on all three. You've had a very long career in radio as a total and obviously 56 years yeah. all up <laughs> how long do you think it felt was it until you felt comfortable in that abc type environment versus a commercial station orientation was that uh, a hard transition or did it take a while or? well that's a funny question because it's a bit of each uh, parts of it were very very good i mean they're a good employer in, in one way it was very political you had to watch which side of politics you're on and uh, and it was always very clicky as to which click you were with and so forth so you had to watch that but I, I got adjusted to that so parts of it were very good uh, parts of it weren't um, it was like anything else you know I have heard it said in the past and I'm not sure off the top of my head who said it but one thing that they mentioned really defined their time with the ABC as an organisation was if, you, if you're producing content about a situation in the world and you work for the ABC, you are 
you you have to actually be there to a certain degree. Yeah. You can't just sit up in your ivory tower at the top of Fox FM making jokes about something you have no mm. knowledge of or experience. Yeah. So was that something that you noticed when you went there, that they yeah. They, yeah. they want you to actually be in it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, the, the best thing about them, they were very... A uh, very forgiving employer because, as I say, I learnt TV and it was brand new to me. Yeah. So I made a few mistakes. Now, in commercial TV, you would have got the flick. I would have said, he's hopeless. You yeah. Know. See but, you later. Yeah. And sometimes you'd go and apologise and say, look, I made a mistake. I shouldn't have. They'd say, that's okay. You know, you'll, you'll be better next time. Yeah. And as time went by, you learned all the, you know, the floor manager would say, you know, extend what you're saying or, or hurry up or, you know, all the hand signals and all that. And you got to know that and, and you started talking TV jargon with the other people. Yeah. Yeah, okay. It's just like anything else, a matter of learning. Yeah, right. I'm sure there's as much jargon in TV as there is in radio, I would yeah, imagine. Yeah, So there aren't anyone who's listening who does know. You probably knows that. And I was humming and ahhing, to be honest, Paul, if I was even going to bring this up, because I'm sure you've talked about it a hundred times, but I thought this is a mm. chance for at least no other reason but the fact you get to say the quote in full, as you would have said it on the radio. Bad swear words included, if you're comfortable with that. I know you've had a few run-ins with different uh, John Farnham's. Different eras of John Farnham. <laughs> yeah. So I think there was two, but the, the one that I guess made the third part, I think third page three of The Sun, mm. etc., was you were trying from memory. I'll let you tell the story, but I'll just set it up. This is how I knew it was going to be funny. As soon as I read the words, I was trying to use the talk back to talk to the engineer. Yeah, that's right. And I'll let you take it from there, but can you just take us through that story? Well, at, at most radio stations, the microphone is either on or off. But at 3KZ, they had a three-way thing that went from off to halfway, which would turn the, the speakers off. So if you're on the phone, you put it halfway and the, you'd have silence in the studio. And then you clicked it one more time to be on. Well, I thought I was on the halfway mark where I just had the speakers are off. Actually, I had left the mic on. Well. And I was looking for this guy. This is one of the... Dangers in radio is that the intercom goes through the mic, which should never happen. If I owned a radio station, the intercom would be separate. But a lot of stations, and I've heard people just talking, not saying anything bad, but... Uh, just having a chat. Yeah, I was listening to the 3UZ one day, and Alan Lappin was on the air. He said, oh, uh, at the end of this record, uh, we'll have traffic come in car one. So I rang 3UZ and it said, oh, Alan's mic is leaking. I mean, he wasn't saying anything wrong. Yeah. But I, uh, I, I did. I uh, said, where the F is everyone in this... Shit house joint, <laughs> which uh, it's uh, just was, a great quote. Yeah, so page three in the sun, and my ratings went up. <laughs> wow, well, that's that just shows that people like a bit of honesty, don't but, they? But the, the Farnham connection was that I was playing John Farnham a song called Everything Is Out of Season, and uh, years later I was at three uh, at, uh, at Mount Buller at Snow FM, and Farnham was up there skiing. So I said, Come and be interviewed. So uh, we're chatting away. And we finished the interview, and I went to a song, but I left the mic on. So we're chatting over the top of the music, and someone rang. I pick up the phone and said, hello, Snow FM, and they said, your mic's still on. <laughs> so I turned the mic off, and I said, Farnham, you've done it to me again. And he said, don't blame me. <laughs> Nothing to do with me. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> so obviously something like that, you get a massive fine for now, but people push really close to that line a lot more often than maybe what they used to. Hey, so. uh, mate, the word I used, you listen to Triple J, they say it every five minutes. Yeah, well, that's it, yeah. I mean, this this show is full of swearing, but we, we've managed to not swear at all today, which is great. So where the F is this guy in this S house of a place or thereabouts? Was this a situation where 
was someone hotlined to you when you were on the air, or could they, or did you have to wait to get? I oh, know. I think you were suspended from memory for. Oh yeah, I was. Oh, well, I was suspended. I mean, it was yeah. a bit of a trick. Was that there. something where they just ring you and just say, "Sorry, buddy, get off"? Oh no, or they oh, let no. You- the program director came in and yanked me off air. I was doing four to seven, and yeah. I got to quarter past four, and that's as far as I got. <laughs> 15 minutes in. Yeah, 15 minutes into the show and they dragged me off the show. And one of the guys who had preceded me was still on the building came and said, what did you say? I said, what did I say about what? And he said, what did you say on air? I said, I didn't know what he was talking about, not thinking it had gone to air. Well, anyway, then the uh, program director came and said, I think you should uh, come off the air now. <laughs> and uh, someone had to replace me and I was well. sent home. <laughs> and, uh, of course, next day I was page three in the sun. Yeah, because they're – at that time, was there a more wholesome artist than John Farnham at the time? No. no. It's almost <laughs> like you said it over the top of play school. So. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So you've had a few run-ins with Farnham. That's awesome. Did, was there, is there any other stories from – obviously, these are things that I've been able to find, but is there anything when you think back, Paul, a funny story for your period pre-Wangaratta that really still stands out in your mind? Obviously, it doesn't have to involve anyone famous, just... No, not really. Uh, one of the things... Well, this is a famous story. I'm amazing. Uh, of all the people I met, people ask me this question all the time. And I've given... Since I've retired, I've given a couple of talks to, to yep. you know, uh, elderly folk and at homes and whatever. And um, they say, you know, who did you meet? And so I rattle off, you know, the various people I met. And I find that this, it's nearly a cliche with me now that the bigger they were, the nicer they were. The people who were the real idiots and and fools were some crappy fifth-rate band from Perth or something that had one hit. You know, they they wouldn't make an arrangement for an interview and they wouldn't turn up or they'd turn up late and whatever. Yet some of the biggest stars were the nicest stars. Like you may remember in the article that Bobby Rydell, I interviewed Bobby Rydell. He comes to Albury occasionally. And and, uh, and I haven't seen him for years, but he kept calling him Mr. Connick. And I said, no, I'll call you Bobby and you call me Paul, you know, let's make it friendly. So, yep. of course, yes, Mr. Connick. And I said, no, no, you still haven't got it. <laughs> no, I stopped the tape and I said, don't call me Mr. Connick. Yeah. And then uh, uh, I met um, Roy Orbison at a function. And uh, so we met, but, you know, not buddies, but we met. And whenever anyone came up to the studios at 3KZ, we were used to the entourage. So the star would come up with his girlfriend, hairdresser, manager, uh, you know, his musical director. There'd be five or six or seven or eight people with, with the star. Only one was going to get interviewed, but he'd come Some up Some random with, guy, depending on their drug habit. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So uh, one time uh, the doorbell rang. We had a security door, and I went to the door, and there's Roy Orbison. I looked over his shoulder and said, Where's everybody else? Yeah. He said, there's nobody else. I said, you, you're, you're here on your own? He said, yeah. Not even and security. He, no, no, nothing. Wow. And I, I said, how'd you get here? And he was at the Southern Cross Hotel in 3KZ. It was in the Trades Hall in Ligon Street. Yeah, okay. And I said, how'd you get here? He said, and he looked at me like I was stupid. He said, I walked. I said, you walked? <laughs> wow. this, this great star. I thought, he probably passed umpteen people in the, yeah. the streets and just did that look like Roy Orbison? Yeah. <laughs> well, it was. That's awesome. <laughs> just on Roy Orbison, everyone thinks that they have an idea of Roy Orbison because they've seen a sign for the 400,000 <laughs> tribute bands that are to Roy Orbison. Yeah. If you were to put into perspective how famous that gentleman was, I think a lot of people think he's just like one of those people that, 
was one of those old artists mm-hmm. that people do tributes of. Mm. How famous would you say that he is, if you put it in a modern perspective? Oh, look, he was huge. He was a one-man Beatles. Yeah. Uh, festival Hall, but has a seating capacity of nearly 7,000 people. He sold the joint out, and he had a hit called Running Scared. And I remember one time he sang it in its entirety seven times, because every time he sang it, people would yell and scream. In the same set. Wow, that's and he sang it again, <laughs> and after crazy. he sang it for the seventh time, he said, "That's it." He said, "I've got other songs to sing," yeah. and they finally let him go. But he was huge. Everything he did was, if not number one, it'd be two or three, and it'd be top ten. Everything. Yet one of the things about him, he was one of the most humble, totally no ego type people I've ever met. He was just he knew what he did was a job. And he would turn up on time, he'd do his gig, you know, white shirt and tie and a suit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and his art glasses. Yep. And he'd sit there and he made no hardly any movement. He'd have his guitar and he didn't jump around and you know do anything. He'd just sit there and do his songs. And uh, he, he was he was huge. It's just a different era, wasn't it? He? he was famous yeah. for the quality of what he did yeah, on record yeah, songs and on stage. But like that was why he was that's yep. why people went crazy for him, not yep. because of Yep looks or his social media followers mm, or mm. some crazy shit that he did when he wasn't famous. It yeah. was all about yeah. quality songs yeah, and yeah, performing yeah. them well. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. a different time. He, yeah, he was very big. And as I say, while I'm on the subject, uh, uh, with Johnny O'Keefe and Cole Joy and, and Neil Sedaka and Henry Mancini and, uh, uh, and I don't know how many other people, the, the bigger they were, the more humble they were and, and the, the, the terrific interview. They never gave me any trouble. You know, they turn up on time. They do the interview. Professionals. Yeah. And I interviewed Charlie Pride and I said to him, look, I've got to be honest. I said, I know nothing about you. I said, I know you're a black country singer. And that's all I know. He said, that's cool. He said, mate, we'll fake it, you know. Yeah, so he just rabbited on. He wanted to be a professional baseball player, and uh, yeah. but he got into country music and rah, rah, And he was fantastic. He yeah. was just a lovely bloke. Righto. So, Paul, I just wanted to move forward a little bit now mm-hmm. to your time in Wangaratta. Mm-hmm. It's probably why most of the people are listening now mm-hmm. because it's a local-based podcast. So I know in Albury there were a few long-term people like different shows have had a fairly decent run on the morning programs, mm-hmm. but I'm not sure about 2AY. To be honest, I don't really listen to it, so I'm mm-hmm. not sure about that, but you've had what what could only be called a pretty epic career here. Yeah, well, 16, 16. years. Well, most, as, as we said earlier, that uh, country radio is used as a, as a training ground for most young kids. You know, they come from Melbourne or Sydney. They want to get out of there fast, you know, so six months or a year, whatever. So the average uh, of a radio announcer, young kid who comes to a uh, to, uh, country, boy or girl, uh, they maybe three years as an average. Some might do one or two. Some might do three. But by that stage, they either move to a bigger regional station or they make Mate got their gig in the in the city. Well, because I've done it the other way around. I came from the city. I'd have actually given up radio. I was running a restaurant in Melbourne. I owned a restaurant and uh, called Turntables, by the way. Okay, very good. <laughs> What'd you serve? What sort of cuisine? Was oh, it? a bit of everything. My you, my chef used to call it eclectic, whatever that means. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> that sounds like he could be bothered designing a menu. <laughs> yeah, a bit of everything. <laughs> yeah. So um, I came the other way around, and I came here for a reason. That my then wife, my second ex-wife, I've got two of them now. Um, uh, we had a horse stud, an Arabian horse stud, in, in uh, just outside of Wodonga. And for in, anyone who's not Kiel. local, how far away is that exactly, just for 87 context? 87 kilometres. Yeah, it's an epic drive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, just to cut you off. I'll... Yeah, so uh, uh, that, that's why I came here. And uh, to be honest, I, I would have been happy for a non-radio job. You know, I figured I'd had enough of radio and had a restaurant. So I applied for uh, a cellar door manager, uh, uh, the Elgin's Pub in Wodonga, advertising for a 
for a, for a, a manager of a they're going to put in a prestige yeah, upmarket wine section and uh, apply for that. And I had been interviewed and chatted away and nothing came of that. And uh, so I applied for jobs that were non-radio jobs and I had I got them, that would have been that. But as time went by and I couldn't find anything and I was living in Melbourne and I was coming up on weekends to the farm. My then wife was already on the farm running it. And um, so I thought, oh, my radio <laughs> might be radio. So yep. I just rang 3 and he called and spoke to the general manager and said, look, I'm coming up to move up there. So I, I actually have a property, but I'm still living in Melbourne. And uh, any chance of a job? And he said, well, I've got nothing going at the moment. He said, but if I find something, I'll call you. And, of course, nothing happened. 11 months went by and I thought, oh, it's the end of it. You know, it's one of those... Yeah, gone. And he rang out of the blue and said, "When can you start?" I said, "Who is this?" I'm sorry. Yeah, sorry, sorry. Who is this? Sorry, who is this? What? <laughs> and uh, he said, uh, "Breakfast announcer resigned yesterday." He said, "You got the gig." Yeah. And uh, so that was it. Awesome. And uh, and it wasn't going to be a two or three year thing for me trying to get to Melbourne. I wanted to get up here. So yeah. uh, 16 years later. <laughs> wow, that's incredible. So what did you know about? the station or Wangaratta in general? Ah, well, I knew a lot about Wangaratta because I used to come via here. My favourite pub was the North over here, the North Eastern Hotel. Yeah. And I used to come here and uh, we'd have a few drinks there and we'd go on to Mount Buller or Falls Creek or whatever. So I, I came through Wangaratta quite a bit and I thought it was quite a nice town. And then in 1993, I was hired by the National Party to do the ads, the famous uh, uh, election that John Hewson lost that he wasn't going to lose but did. And uh, Keating was not was going to lose but didn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and uh, there was a guy called Philip Puller who was then the the candidate for the National Party, and I, I did two things. I came up and I did some training on how to appear on television because he never appeared on television in his life, yep. and uh, and I did all the ads for the National Party, which I did all the radio ads at three and E. And I did all the TV ads at AMV4, as it was then, it was an independent station in, in Albury, so I did all the television ads, which weren't in, just voiceover, they weren't, they weren't in vision. Anyway, um, so I, I knew a bit about Wang and knew a bit about Albury. Ra- were those ads, sorry, only running locally on the TV, or were they national on the uh, television? No, 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 side? no, they're just on AMV4, just Albury for the local, for, yeah, okay. for, the, for the federal seat of Indi, yep, yep. and uh, and 3 and E well, yeah, also. So, uh, so uh, I had actually been in the place not knowing that, you know, years later, I'd be there working there. Yeah, right. So let's just talk about these epic drives that you were doing. Mm. One of the things that scares me, even though having something to do with the radio business at some point is one of my life goals and ambitions, can you just talk us through your average morning and why when I think a lot about it, I think, wow, those hours are tough. (laughs) Like they, they sound like Horrible, horrible hours. Yeah, well, initially the breakfast was six to nine, and uh, then it moved forward at half an hour, five thirty to eight thirty. So it changed the time when I got up. But I got up. I tried different uh, times to get up. Four o'clock. Tried four thirty. Tried twenty to four. Whatever. And eventually, when the breakfast started at five thirty, I was getting up at three fifteen wow. every morning. And of course, on a on a horse stud, we had thirty horses. Three cats, three dogs, pile of chooks and ducks, and some of those had to be fed, not all of them. Yep. So I would get up, the alarm would go, and I'd get up and I'd to feed two, th- uh, three cats. One eventually died, so it got down to two cats. And there were t- uh, three dogs, one died, so it was down to two dogs. So I'd release one dog, was left alone because he would never go anywhere, but the other one was a border collie, he'd roam, so he'd be on a chain, so I'd let him off in the morning. So I'd do all that, feed a couple of cats and a, a couple of dogs and have a shower and get dressed. And I had 45 minutes to do that, and by 4 o'clock I had to be at the front gate, and there was one horse I had to feed, which was right in front of the house, so I fed him, and then I'd take off. So I'd, 
I'd leave it as a time signal for four o'clock was going through. I'd have to be at the front gate, otherwise I'd be running late. Yeah. So it was 17 kilometres into Wodonga and another 66 from Wodonga. So it was 87 kilometres from the front gate to the 3 and E car park. Yeah, right. <laughs> and that took an hour, a bit wow. under 55 minutes. And this is five days a week for 16 Five years. days a week for 13 years. Oh, 13. Yeah. Oh, because you spent... Eventually, when, I, when my marriage put up, I moved down to Wangaratta, and it yeah. was then five minutes from the studio. Yeah. That must have been a bit, all, a bit strange to not have that. <laughs> it was good. Although you... Just talk us through... I mean, there's a lot of careers which require abnormal hours. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, there's a, obviously... There's a lot of heroic careers that require ungodly mm. hours, whether you're a really experienced doctor or in the military mm-hmm. or in the police force or mm-hmm. fire or yep. whatever. Yeah, more shift work. Not every person in the content game would choose to want to put themselves through what I heard referenced was by someone I think he called into their show, quote, it's like living with permanent jet lag, unquote. Pretty much. Just what time are you going to bed and what? how much difference would it make if just say you went at got to sleep at 9.30 versus 9 when you woke up at 3 o'clock in the morning. Like, how much would, could you well, feel that in your – you'd have to be oh, feeling yeah. that in your bones. Yeah, you? yeah, you're tired. You're pretty much tired all the time. You're always sleep-deprived yeah. because some nights you'd have a good night's sleep, which might be six or seven hours, and other nights you'd be lucky to get three or four. See, you know? I'm getting lost here. How, how do you get on the radio and be a personality which requires well, more energy than a normal human has, and you've got to turn it on a little bit to project into – if you talk at your normal pace or normal – level of energy, a normal person comes into a radio studio, they'll have the audience falling asleep in three seconds because they think they're exciting, but they're not. Mm. How did you, I mean, obviously a long career, but after getting up at that time, feeding animals, driving, we all know that particularly that 17 kilometres between where you were based and Aubrey's probably Mm. a foggy death trap for the lack of a better term. Yeah, yeah, sometimes. How did you turn up and just have that? Oh, well, it's showbiz, you know. The yeah. show must go on. It's like the curtain goes up. And uh, uh, I remember the, uh, seeing a movie about the uh, the 30s uh, star, Eddie Cantor, and he's about to go on stage and someone hands him a telegram, his telegram that his mother's just died. So then uh, they announce him and he goes on stage and starts singing and they do a close-up of his face and he's crying, but he's still singing the song and, and so wow. forth because you can't dis- disappoint. The uh, yep. disappoint the crowd. So uh, I'd get there, and some days I felt better than others. You know, some days yep. you have a good night's sleep, and you feel pretty good. Other days you wouldn't feel pretty good. But you can't let okay. that show. You can't yeah. come Just on. Just for those performers out there, whether they're listening to this and they're into the radio, or mm. they're doing a community radio show, or comedy, or in a band, or whatever they're doing creatively. What were your? Did you have any? I don't use. It sounds a bit douchey to say tools or methods, but. What we what did you do to get yourself up on those days where you were just not not feeling like performing? Oh well, you, you realise you're there and just have to do it. And also the uh, the the, so the audience aren't interested in how you feel. You know, you can't yeah. come and say, "Oh, look, I'm really crook today." Which is yeah. part of the problem with a lot of radio now. Yeah. Is the- yeah seem to think that the audience cares about every second of their personal lives. Yeah, well, that's right. So I wouldn't do that. So if, uh, if say, I had a sore throat and it sounded like, I'd obviously say, look, I'm sorry, I'm a bit croaky this morning because I've got a sore throat, because it was obvious that I did. But if I just felt uh, unwell, but it wasn't obvious, uh, you just go on. There's certain things you have to do. You have to do the weather. You have to do the traffic reports. You have to back announce the music and read bits out of a paper and, you know, comment on something that had happened locally. And uh, you just had to do it. And, and some days your shows weren't as good as other days, which you would know, but hopefully the public didn't know. Yeah, I guess that's the key, isn't it? Mm. So one thing we didn't cover off, Paul, were you on 3 and E? 
when you got to Wangaratta, was that a solo hosted show? And yeah. did, did it remain that way your whole oh, yep. 16 Yep, was, So it all fell on you in the end. One man band, yep. Did one you man have band. any producers, anyone taking no, calls? No, no, I was producer and so did the show. So you were flat out. So you might not even have had time to think about how you were feeling. Well, in a way, not. No, <laughs> you had, well, for a start, I'd say to myself, I've got three hours, you know. I've, I've just got to fake it for three hours. I don't feel fantastic, but come nine o'clock, I'm off and I'm, I can do off-air stuff, which because I was music director as well, so I go and sit at a keyboard and pick music and so forth, but that public didn't know what I was doing. So, uh, as I say, some days you'd come off and say, gee, I've done a really good show. And other days you'd think, well, that wasn't that wasn't fantastic, but uh, you can't win them all, you know. And some days your mood would be affected, but hopefully the public wouldn't know. That's amazing, particularly having grown up in a household that for a period of time had multiple horses. Knowing they're flighty, they're always ill, Everything that's wrong with them costs thousands of dollars if they oh, – yeah. doesn't matter what happens to them. It couldn't have been – you couldn't have picked a more stressful stud to be running while you were trying yeah. to get up at three in the morning. To be honest, horses are just a different animal altogether. Oh, yeah. For the, yeah. I know that's it. Yeah. Yeah. And were there ever any times where, <laughs> where there was just something horrendous happening on the farm that was stressful and you had to just forget about that? Oh, a couple of things. Well, we had bushfires and things which none of us burned down. But one day I got up and did the full thing, you know, shaved and showered and got dressed and so forth, backed the car out of the garage and a tree had fallen across the uh, the only way out of the farm, across the, <laughs> across the yard, just right out. <laughs> and you couldn't – there's no back way, but that was only one way. So all I could do was ring the station and say, look, you know, I'm not going to ch- turn a chainsaw on at 4 o'clock in the morning yeah. and it would and, uh, uh, it would take me hours anyway. Yep. So I just – I couldn't make it. I went back to bed and someone else had to do the show and, and there's nothing else I could do. And when I got home that day, I then got the chainsaw out and chopped the tree up, which took me over an hour, which I, people locally wouldn't have been happy at four o'clock in the no, morning. No, gosh. And neither would all the horses. Like, yeah, yeah. well, the horses weren't a real problem in the morning. I used to feed one of them. It was right in front of the house and he had to be fed. Yeah, okay. And, uh, but the others were all out in paddocks, so oh, they, they weren't a hassle till later. That's good. So just on the horse thing, would you have called yourself a horse guy? No. No, so no. It was, my wife was the horse person, yeah. and I had to learn a little bit about it, but uh, no more. That would have been good fodder for the radio, surely, because horse people are n- unlike any other people. <laughs> That's right. You're right about that. Yeah. I remember, <laughs> I won't say who it was, but I heard a story about this particular person had a job, and they called into work basically sick, and they said the following words, quote, I can't come into work. I have to spend the whole night in the shed with my new foal. Mm. And they're like, Okay, well, that makes sense. Apparently, like the, the vet had been, it was a difficult birth. Mm-hmm. What the person that they were calling didn't realise was when they said, I've got to spend the, this time in the shed, that that wasn't just going to be one night. Mm-hmm. They wanted to stay in the shed and sleep with the foal mm-hmm. yeah. next to it for days and days on end. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like only a horse person would think that's a normal conversation. Yeah, <laughs> yeah sorry, I'm, I'm sleeping in the shed for a week. Yeah, well, that's right. Well, that happens. We, we had foals and things, and uh, usually my wife would be up, and well, I had to go to work, so I was exempt from having to yeah. you know, do anything overnight. So but, you might have uh, picked the ideal job by accident. Yeah, in a way. But I always say about horses that they're uh, dangerous at both ends and uncomfortable in the middle, so that's <laughs> so not a horse <laughs> Exactly. <person. laughs> so just getting, right, getting back to doing this drive, it still baffles my mind that you were doing this drive every yeah, day. Yeah, 87 down, 87 back for 13 long so, years. Uh, I know we'll probably finish up in a minute, Paul, but I recall there being 
four kangaroos in that time mm-hmm. and two completely totaled cars. Yeah, well, two just bounced off and didn't no damage, hardly a dent, but then two really wrecked uh, wrecked both cars at that, that time and Morning put me trips off the road. Or Morning, yeah, no, oh yeah, nothing at night, not not a worry at night. But I see the odd kangaroo of an afternoon, but you'd see it, of course, you know, miles away. But in the morning, uh, as you say, foggy, especially that bit between the farm and Wodonga, quite foggy, and these things just jump out in front of you, yeah. and uh, and too late. People say, why didn't you stop or why didn't you swerve? Well, you can't. We're well, not meant to swerve. That's the thing. You're just right out in front of you and bang and gone. Yeah. I had a friend whose parents, they owned a truck company, mm. and I was talking to them because the band that I was in in the 2000s, we had a massive accident involving a kangaroo on the highway coming back from Sydney, and this particular gentleman who's been driving trucks for 30 years or something said, look, the first, second, third, 50th kangaroo, you're always going to swerve. Mm. When you hit a 1,000 of them like I have, mm. you don't swerve anymore. Mm. No, so when people going. say to you, oh, you shouldn't have swerved, which is what we did, unfortunately, mm. Like, there's no training for that. No. That's not part of getting your L's. Yeah. How to dodge a kangaroo like that. <laughs> well, you, you swerve to avoid the kangaroo and hit a gum tree. You know? Yeah, well, that's it's, it, it's, but it's just... It's better it, to knock the kangaroo it's off. There's inst- plenty of It's room. instinct. You have to have <laughs> so much exposure to yeah. animals on the road to not swerve. Yeah. It's just ridiculous when people say, oh, why'd you swerve? Yeah. Oh, just yeah, and then there's off. the odd wombat as well. I don't see that many of them, but the odd wombat, they, they can make a mess of your car. But when I uh, hit one kangaroo on the way to work and I just smashed, I had a Magna at the time, just smashed the whole front of it, I could still drive to work. I had the car fixed and I had it back a couple of weeks and then I felt ran over a dead one at the exact same spot that oh, I did one. <laughs> so which then stuffed up the undercarriage. Oh, I mean, the, the, the kangaroo's already dead, but I didn't know that in the dark. And, and suddenly I went, bang. I thought, what the hell was that? So it was a dead kangaroo. Wow. Same spot I hit the other one, but there you go. Obviously you didn't get hurt and it, did, it does lead to something I want to leave people with and it's something that a few people that I've tracked down to try and get onto mm. yourself – and people that have written articles about you across mm. different publications have always said one thing, that you had a boundless amount of energy, mm. but you weren't a joker and you mm. weren't like... Mm. No, never like once. An, ent- an entertainer, but mm. you, more than anything, you were a dyed-in-the-wall professional. Mm. Yeah, well, that's nice of them to say that, but it's true. I, I know, apart from the time the tree fell across the, <laughs> the dry and I couldn't get to work. Yeah, well, so like, what do they call was, that, an act of God? Yeah, that's right. And I mean, I had holidays, obviously, like other people, yeah. but I was never late. When I was meant to be there, I was always, I was never late, not once in 16 years, which is, I mean, human nature, you're late sooner or later. Alarms don't go or there's a, you know, you have this system, we have a, a, a clock radio plus a phone. Yeah. <laughs> so if one doesn't work, because you have a lot of blackouts in the country, so you've still got to have a backup because yeah, the, the clock radio doesn't work, so forth. But can I tell you one one story that uh, people Absolutely. find sometimes difficult to believe? I was a Chris Christopherson fan, and he came to Melbourne, and I volunteered to compare the show for nothing just so I could meet him. So obviously they agreed to that, no money changing hands. So I – and he was at that time married to Rita Coolidge, and they just had a little daughter, Casey. And uh, I thought that she would be in the lesser star – would go out and do the opener, and then he would come on. But they chopped and changed. They didn't do it that way. So he went on, and then she went on, and then they did a duet and whatever. Anyway, he went on, and he came back, and he said to me, well, that's it. I can't go on. I said, what, what do you mean? He said, I can't go on. I said, what are you talking about? Aren't you going back on? He said, no, I'm going home. I said, 
I said, there's 6,000 people out there who've paid a pile of money to see you. What do you mean you're going home? He said, oh, I've broken a string. And he said, my voice is terrible. He said, my voice is terrible. I'm sounding terrible. I said, you're going to go home? Well. Are you kidding me? Jeez. I said, what's going to happen? He said, oh, Rudy can do the rest of the show. I said, no, that, that's not how it works, wow. uh, Chris. I said, there's 6,000 people out there who've at the full house. They've yeah. paid a lot of money to see you. Jeez. If you don't go out there and see me and Bobby McGee, they'll tear the bloody place <laughs> apart. <laughs> and he said, oh, gee, do you think I'm good enough? Do you think I can do it? And I thought, why am I telling this millionaire superstar yeah, yeah. patting him up on the back and feeding his ego and saying, oh, I said, Chris, I think you can do it. Go yeah, out there. You've got a chance. I had to talk him, talk <laughs> this superstar to go back out there. So yeah. as soon as he fixed it, I said, you can fix a string yourself. You don't need anyone. Oh, you know. So he changed the string on his guitar. And went out there and went into the opening chords of me and Bobby McGee and the place went berserk and he, he was fine. Yeah, well. He's all right after that. <laughs> Why am I talking? I'm not working for money anyway. And I'm talking to this guy to come back on stage. Couldn't believe it. <laughs> That's a good one. You might need to, if you ever want to get back into the working world, mate, maybe you could be a career counsellor for upset entertainers. Yeah. Righto. Well, we might leave it there, Paul. Okay. Good it's, on you. it's been bloody fantastic and... If anyone's still listening to this that helped me track Paul down, I want to say thank you for that. And, yeah, it's been a real pleasure. And, yeah, not, right, o- not only a great voice, you turned out to be an exceptional bloke, which is the other thing people said. So thank you, sir. And Good on you. Nice to talk to you. Catch you. Bye.